After the Virus, Season 1, Episode 5. You made it to Episode 5. Well done! Are you getting a feel for Ishii Country? All of the places I identify are real. Only the names are mine. But Lion's Lair and Cabin Flat and Hope's Family Camp are all located in close proximity to the last cave that real-life Ishii lived in, a place he called Wowu Nupo Nutetna, which translates to Grizzly Bear's Hiding Place. We know all of this thanks to Ishii's association with anthropologists Alfred Krober and Thomas Waterman, his friend Saxton Pope, and the interpreter from a related Yana tribe, Sam Batwi. If Ishii's story is of interest to you, I'd highly recommend Theodora Krober's definitive account, Ishii in Two Worlds, as well as Chico author Richard Burrell's series of books that re-examine all that is known about Ishii, especially Ishii's Return Home, the story of the trip that Ishii took with the two anthropologists in 1914 back to his childhood home. And now, back to Will's story. May 9th, a harrowing day. Hope and I were hunting the open ridgetop when we heard the thrum of a helicopter. There was little vegetation big enough to hide us, but we hugged a small gray pine in hopes of disguising ourselves. The chopper flew by and I thought we were safe, but then he banked a turn and I knew we'd been spotted. With nowhere to hide, we ran to the edge of the cliff. There was a 30-foot sheer drop and the copter was heading straight for us. Growing along the cliff face were scattered trees and shrubs that quickly turned to dense trees. Our only hope was a tall bay tree 50 feet away. Yelling instructions to hope as we ran, I heard the chopper hover, so sure they were that we had nowhere to go. As the first shots hit the dirt in front of us, I threw hope and then jumped. We were able to clutch the limber branches of the bay which checked our fall, though I was gouged and cut. Hope followed instructions perfectly and first made her way into the center of the tree, then quickly to the ground. It took the pilot a while to adapt to the surprise of our jump, and the proximity of the cliff meant that he had to reposition below us and away from the cliff wall. It gave us enough time to make it under the dense tree canopy farther down slope, where we were able to move quickly. Blasts of machine gun spray peppered the woods as the frustrated gunner fired randomly into the trees 100 feet behind us. We zigzagged erratically, choosing the heaviest cover wherever possible. After about a mile, with the sound of the helicopter far away, we stopped and Hope hugged me, sobbing and laughing at the same time. Her face had many cuts, but none appeared deep. Her sleeve was torn and there was a deep gouge in her upper arm that had already coagulated. I fared about the same, with a significant cut on my neck that had turned my collar red with blood, and all the skin torn away from my right shin. But we were alive. Knowing that the copter would continue to search for us for a while, we headed to a brushy spring that I knew of nearby. There, we cleaned each other's wounds and bathed, drank deeply, and huddled in the cool vegetation to wait out the day. At dusk, we returned to our cave. May 10th. We stayed in the cave most of the day as we listened to the sound of the helicopter searching the ridge and canyon. Hope opened up today and told me all about her family and how they ended up on the ridge across from us. They were a Mennonite family, prepped for Armageddon and practiced in survival, who had lived on acreage outside of town, worked the land, grew their own crops, slaughtered their own animals, and mostly kept to themselves. 
The combination of droughts and floods had almost wiped out their farm, but through belt tightening and good management, they managed to keep themselves fed. Their relative isolation had kept them virus-free. At the height of the epidemic, a whole convoy of men in military vehicles commandeered their ranch and drove them from their home. Packing quickly what they could, they fled, only to find anarchy and death all around them. With no safe haven and no plan, the men decided to head into the foothills to try to find a place to reestablish themselves. They had set up a temporary camp on the opposite ridge and had seen the cabin fires that I had lit. Hope had been out with her mother gathering food when the helicopter came. When the shooting started, her mother directed her to the cliffside cave and went to try and save her brother, but never came back. She spent a cold and frightening night alone, and then I showed up. A strong, smart child, this Hope. May 11. When we jumped off the cliff, I had left my bow on the open ridge, so taking my rifle and handgun, we went to retrieve it. We found it right where I dropped it, then quickly retreated to cover in case our pursuers returned. Returning to the cave, I took the opportunity to teach Hope about the guns. I showed her how to load them, how to sight them, and, removing the bullets first, had her dry fire them to get a feel for how to shoot. Suddenly, we heard the helicopter again, but this time it sounded as though it had landed. It was about a mile away from us on the cabin flat. Then the engine went quiet, and I knew we had to put some more distance between us. We quickly made our way north, staying at approximately the same elevation. We moved swiftly up canyon a couple of miles. The canyon became shadier with more pines. The geology changed also, and what caves there were were formed by giant fallen slabs of basalt rock, creating covered voids where they leaned against other rocks. We sheltered here for the day, and fearing that they had landed and were searching for us on the ground, we decided to spend the night. Filling the narrow void with pine needles and leaves, we burrowed into the insulating debris and spent a fitful but sufficiently warm night. May 12th. Up early and with a hand line and hook baited with stonefly larvae, I caught a number of trout, which we ate raw for breakfast. Hope was not keen on the raw fish, and I did not want to start a fire, so we spent the rest of the morning foraging. A good selection of cattails, salsify roots, and wild rose hips. At midday, we crossed the creek and headed downstream. Arriving opposite Cabin Flat, I could see that the helicopter was gone, so we crossed back over. Boot prints were everywhere. Checking out the burned cabin, the abandoned vehicles, the human remains, and then heading uphill. I hurried up slope with Hope following me. Getting within sight of the cave, I became enraged to see it had been completely despoiled. Keeping some distance in case of a booby trap, it was clear that all of my possessions had been ransacked, my bedding and clothing burned, my supplies taken. Why? With most of my necessities destroyed, I decided to return to the cache to resupply and then find a new hiding place. We arrived at the cache near dusk and I was pleased to find it just as I had left it. We opened some cans of food and bedded down under some nearby black oaks. May 13th. Woke early and began preparing to move. About half of everything I originally brought here from town was still in the cache. I still had my rifle and bow and one handgun, along with my day pack full of survival gear. Although two of my sleeping bags had been destroyed, I had two left and two pack frames. 
I loaded as much as I could into my pack and assembled a light pack for Hope. We would have to make two trips to get everything wanted for a new camp. We spent all morning walking and watching for potential shelter. Searching the area around where we had sheltered two nights ago, we found another void created by fallen boulders. This one was accessed by crawling through a triangular hole, which opened into a 12-foot round, mostly flat area, surrounded by tall boulders and half-covered by a cantilevered boulder. The rest opened to above, all under a canopy of dense live oaks. I attached a camouflage tarp in such a way that it covered the remainder of the opening, and we leveled the leafy detritus for a uniformly level and soft floor. We then arranged our gear into our own spaces, Hope getting one of the sleeping bags and my daughter's clothing. We spent the night there, planning to go back to the cache for more tomorrow. May 15th, a traumatic couple of days. Hope and I had returned to the cache, and I was packing another load while Hope was gathering food nearby. Suddenly, the Sikorsky flew right over me, heading for where Hope was. Grabbing my rifle, I got out of the cache to where I could clearly see the chopper. It stopped broadside to me, hovering, and then began shooting. Without thinking, I raised my rifle, focused on the pilot, and fired. Instantly, the copter went out of control and spun into the oaks beneath it. Trees exploded and both wood and metal shrapnel sprayed in all directions. The copter hit the ground mostly intact, with the tail portion lodged in the fork of a limb. The motor died and all was silent for about five seconds. Then I could hear shouting and cursing from inside. The chopper had gone down directly between me and where I had last seen Hope. I had to crawl through a thicket of buckbrush before emerging into the oak grove. There were no sounds coming from the craft, so I took a quick look inside. The pilot was slumped forward. The bullet had entered his left shoulder, shattering bone which it drove through his neck, creating a fist-sized exit hole just below his right ear. Gore covered the dash and windshield. The other occupants were gone. Two sets of boot prints led in the direction of Hope. Clearly, they had not seen me or the muzzle blast and assumed my shot had come from near her location. I began to run, following their trail which was leading down canyon towards the old cave. Coming over a slight rise, I could see a man dressed in military fatigues, walking slowly and scanning right to left. I saw no indication that Hope had been hit in the initial volley and assumed they were now tracking her. Using rocks and bushes for cover, I gained on him until I was just 20 yards behind him. With my position covered by rocks on three sides, I yelled for him to put up his hands. He froze and raised his arms. I ordered him to throw down his weapon and lie down on his stomach with his hands behind his head, which he did. I closed the distance between us, put my knee in his back, and then, with my pistol to his head, removed his service revolver. In this position, I asked him why they were pursuing us and why they had shot the family on the ridge. He said the military quarantine camps were making regular runs to eliminate anyone left alive outside of the quarantine zone, as all the remaining survivors were assumed to be carriers, personally resistant to the virus, but capable of spreading it. I asked him about the girl. He said they thought they might have hit her, but she had run off. The thought of hope injured sent me into a blind rage. I screamed at him to roll over. He begged me not to infect him, so I spat in his face. You don't fuck with my family, were the last words he heard before I put the 9mm in his mouth and pulled the trigger. 
Without another thought, I put his revolver in my belt and got back on the trail of the second man. But before I had gone a hundred feet, I heard a single shot a quarter of a mile below me. One shot was not good. When hunting, one shot either means a clean miss or a clean kill. One and done. The thought of poor Hope dying alone spurred me to abandon all caution and crash loudly through the brush towards the sound. And there I found her. Poor beautiful young Hope. Just a hundred feet from my old cave, there on the ground, blood everywhere. But not her blood. In her hand was the pistol I had hidden in the dead tree, of which I had shown her the location just days before. Next to her on the ground was the writhing, moaning body of a soldier. She had run to the tree, retrieved the gun, and hidden behind it until he tracked her to the spot. And she was ready, firing point blank into his gut as he came around the tree. The shot had knocked her off her feet, but she had done the job. It was all the soldier could do to keep his intestines from seeping out, and the pain was unbearable. Kissing her hair and stroking her head, I told her to look away and then put a bullet through his skull. One and done. With so much trauma in one morning, I felt that both Hope and I needed some time for reflection and healing. We went back up to the cache, covered up the remaining contents, carried the last packful to the new cave, drank deeply from the creek, made a weak stew, and slept. 